All right, Luke 20 is our text. I invite you to turn. You can find the passage on page 879. Last week we talked about how we are building into, this is the final week of Jesus' life. There's, there's quite a bit of detail that's captured by uh, this historian, uh, this physician, Luke. Uh, I'd like for us to, to get the big picture. So I'd like for us to also finish before summer so we can begin a new series. So uh, I'm going to be taking some bigger pieces like uh, 20 or so verses, uh, for instance, today. Uh, hopefully we will uh, miss, I, I will sacrifice some of the details, but hopefully we will uh, get the big picture. I think it's probably a good idea from time to time um, for us to just be reminded uh, what it is that we are doing here. Uh, what is, what is the, the aim? What is the purpose and the objective? Uh, we, we come here, uh, we, why do we expound, why does anyone stand up here and uh, expound and apply uh, God's word? Uh, why do we come to this table? Why do we fellowship and give and, uh, and, and sing and confess? The, the goal, the objective, the purpose, the aim of that uh, is not uh, that we would just come here and, and, and go through the, the, the motions and feel good about ourselves and, and gain a little bit of insight and information that uh, we would treat this like it's a classroom time. It's not so that we could leave here being a little more positive. I'm not against that. Um, uh, it's not that we would leave here with the objective just to be nicer people or to endeavor to be more spiritual or more, uh, better, better behaved this week for crying out loud. I'd like to be uh, a little bit more in line this week. We're not here to gather information or to improve ourselves. We're not here to make me feel good about me or you feel good about you or anyone else. The goal and the objective of our time is that we would know God. That we would know God in a real and personal and intimate, not, not, not things about God, but that we would actually know God. It's very clear, John 17, Jesus says this in John 17, this is eternal life. Now, whatever he's about to say next, I think it would be wise for us to lean in. <laughs> you know, this is eternal life, that you would be a nicer, positive person in the that you would change the world. This is eternal life. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says this is John 17. Read it for yourself this afternoon. This is eternal life, that they may know you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That we would know God. So that was my second plug for signing up for the book study on J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Come see me afterwards. I wish I'd even had a copy of the book and I could have held it up and said, please sign up. That we would know God. Back to our text, Luke 20. We'll begin in verse 9. Many scholars believe that this would have been probably somewhere around Tuesday in that final Passion Week of Jesus' life. He's in the city. It's just the end of his earthly ministry. It's not the end of his life. Thanks be to God uh, that he would continue that ministry. But his earthly ministry is coming to a close and he's going to face the crucifixion. The major opponents to Jesus are, sad to say, the religious leaders. They don't care whether Jesus is speaking the truth. They believe that he is gaining popularity and he has a threat to them having the power, them having the attention. He is the one Jesus they're accusing him of saying outlandish things, disruptive things, rebellious things concerning the kingdom, his own divinity. Jesus is saying crazy things like your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. And so they are extremely uh, upset. They want to trap Jesus in his own words. 
They've already tried many times to do that. The reason is they want to trap him, then take him to the Roman civil authorities uh, to try him and destroy and to crucify him. Jesus knows all this. In fact, Jesus is the one who said this would happen. He predicted that this would indeed trans- uh, would transpire. Why? Why is Jesus going through all this? Why is this going to culminate uh, this way? Well, Jesus knows exactly. All the while, he is teaching. He has control over the situation. He is teaching and showing that he has tremendous uh, authority. He's, he's resigned to follow through with their evil plan. You know, if name-calling were in order that day, uh, they're the ones that, uh, that don't like Jesus. And they're not calling him a liar because they don't really care about the truth anyway. They're saying, Jesus, you're, you're, you're an imposter. You are not the real Messiah. In fact, you are a blasphemer. Because you claim to be on par with God. You're breaking God's law and claiming to be equal with him. When Jesus speaks, if he were to be a name caller, which he is, he calls them snakes. He calls them cowards. Get on with it. Go go ahead. Carry it out. Do what you feel is right. And it's exposed in many places. This is one of them, our passage today. Let me invite you to stand. We're going to read from Luke 20, begin with me in verse 9. And he, that is Jesus, Luke 20, verse 9, began to tell people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. And he went away to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant And they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And when they sent a third, this also they wounded. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. And at that very hour, for they had perceived that he told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that when you speak and teach rightly, And you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said. But marveling at his answers, they became silent. Then there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that a man is if a man's 
brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and he's and the second, and the third, and then likewise all seven left, no children, and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as, as wife. He said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to the angels and the sons of God, being raised, excuse me, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him question. Any question. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. Let me invite uh, God's help. They ask God's help. Father, we confess that we are not uh, independent. We are dependent upon you for life, uh, for wisdom, uh, for hope, for help right now. And we ask that right now you'd forgive us uh, uh, the areas and the ways, me, me very much included, of our unbelief. That you would humble us to hear uh, your voice that you would warm our hearts, that you would draw our affections, that we might know you, that we might have a deeper relationship with you, that we would love you. In your son's matchless name we pray. Amen. Many of you know that it's the time of year that I, like many Americans and others around the world, love watching college basketball. It's March Madness. It's an exciting time of the year. It's the inevitable time of the year that I'll weave this into a sermon somehow one way or another. It was really easy this year because, you know, you have the 64 teams, colleges, Division I, NCAA tournament from around the world playing in like three or four really crunch days of intense basketball. A load of fun, especially when your alma mater, the Furman Paladins, my school, makes it to the tourney. After a long, long, long 40-something years, we get into the tournament. It was even more electric when we won on basically a buzzer beater in the first round. Huge victory, super exciting. It's been a great few days until yesterday. It was so bad, and I've got to be honest, it's, it was so bad in the game that there was one point when the announcers got near the end of the game, and they said, they run out of things to say, evidently, they said, we were down so bad, uh, Furman Paladins, that the announcers said, they need to get more balls in baskets. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, that's not much to say, except when, when, when you utter something like that at two minutes to go, it's basically translated, just give up. Uh, it's that bad. Uh, some of you know what it's like to have your alma mater in the tournament every year, just about. So, you know, hey, I'm glad for you. But all this to say, there are times when you, you just run out of things to say. And you want to look at, in a passage like this, culminating all the way through the Gospel of Luke, when people just don't seem to get it. That you look at it and you go, guys, I mean, honestly, the opposition to Jesus would just stop playing offense? Would you stop playing defense? And would you just surrender to Jesus and all of his wisdom? Jesus, just fall at his feet and then stand up and follow him. 
But then again, Jesus predicted that this is the way that he would die. He's cooperating with them. Why? Because of the will of wicked people who just can't seem to get it through their head? No. Jesus is going through all of this, anticipating it ahead of time, and following through entirely with it because of the will of his Father in heaven. Isn't that good news? Isn't it great news, like we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, that his whole, Jesus' entire record, not only are my sins forgiven, but that Jesus' obedience to the law is credited to you and to me by faith. That's that's great news. We talk about the passive obedience of Christ on the cross, and that covers my sins. Jesus died for my sins, passive obedience. Jesus, I want to tell you today, lived for your sins and mine. That's that we might have a, an active obedience and a righteousness. That is great and good news. I didn't even tend to say that, but it's true. So why not surrender to him? The one who obeyed his father all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, here are two themes that we see, I think, in the passage that Luke would have us see. Jesus exposes the enmity. I'll have it listed in the order of service. Jesus exposes, in verse 9 through 19, the enmity that exists. And then the second thing that Jesus does here, the other theme, is that Jesus silences the spies, the opposition, in verses 20 to 40 that we just read. So first of all, Jesus does. Beginning with this parable, he exposes with the tenants and uh, the landowner uh, that there, there is this enmity. So first of all, this clearly the landowner here is a, a very wealthy person. Uh, that would not have been entirely uncommon in the Roman Empire for someone to be uh, in a different region or uh, outside, uh, maybe uh, in the city. And they had farms and they had other people who were responsible tenants who would inhabit and then go and be responsible for for many seasons on end to harvest the land. Uh, we know that this is actually was a, a a gracious landowner. There was a degree of trust. There was a degree of expectation. Uh, even even when he hears that they won't, the servants won't come back uh, with fruit and that they've been beaten, he is still gracious with them. He sends them more messengers and more people. And then he finally sends his own son to them. The parable, right? It has corollaries. It has, who is this person? Who do they represent? Well, we know that in this parable that the landowner represents God the Father. That's the land. That's the landowner. Then the messengers, excuse me, the tenants. That's the next one that's important in view. The tenants here represent the people of God, Israel. They were the ones who enjoyed the, the blessings of the covenant, which are what? The promises of the covenant would be uh, a Lord, a land and a legacy that you I will be your God and you will be my people and you will you, you'll have descendants, a legacy and that you will possess this land. So they're the people of the, of the promise and the blessing. They have the land uh, that is, is given to them, but it ultimately belongs to God. So that's the tenants. And then the messengers, the servants who are the couriers, bringing uh, word that the owner would like his fruit of the harvest, they're the, they're the ones who represent the various prophets historically down through the ages who are pointing again and again to what? Messiah. To coming back and to to trusting uh, God as their God. The beloved son of the landowner in the parable is the beloved son of the landowner. The final prophet. Trying to get the tenants who were given these promises to see, to, to understand. The Pharisees, they have a mixture in response to this parable 
of suspicion, but primarily they're given over to anger. Some of them are guarded, though, because they, they fear the people like we just read. Uh, but, but their posture is antagonistic and, and they're shocked. They're, I'm sure they said amongst themselves, did you just hear? Did you just hear what he said? That we're the ones who are unworthy, that other people are going to get this land, that we're the ones who've rejected this Messiah. This is this Jesus. No. They're presumptuous. They're arrogant. They're, they're angry. Some of them scorned the prophets. And they killed God's messenger. They did that. They did that all the way up until that last great prophet, John the Baptist. He was beheaded and he was imprisoned. What's the landowner's response in the parable? Well, he's violent. He has, he has anger. We call it wrath. It's legit. Verse 18, he wants to, 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 to crush them. In some ways, we get uncomfortable even contemplating uh, that. I understand what he is saying and what that means. But let me be very clear. He's still a very gracious man. He, like I said, he tried to persuade them. He, he had given them and entrusted them with this land. And then he is rejected and he is denied. Even when he sends his own son, the invitation is sincere. It's free. But then this, this picture of urgency comes in with God's justice. God at times is indeed angry with his people. He's angry at times with his creation, as he should be. He is angry with his people, even down to this very day. At times, God is angry uh, with his people. It's, saying, it's true. It's when we mistake in him. It's when we confuse God's role with our role and our role with God's role that that can easily happen. That's part of the picture between being a tenant and a landowner. Don't you see? We are not the landowner. We are the tenants. And in greed and at times in our own selfish interest, we have, we've served our own desires and turned the whole thing upside down. We've enjoyed, let, let's, here's back to that whole thing about sincerity and honesty, that we stand and we say, God has given the things that I possess and enjoy, the things that I have been entrusted with are just that. They are gifts. They are talents. They are opportunities. But at times we reject the authority. Let's be honest. We, we, we resist the involvement of the landowner, of our faithful God, in our lives. Actively we do it sometimes. Passively we do it at times. Hey, I, I know God, you've given me my, my, we don't say this directly. We don't even say this necessarily we, indirectly. We communicate this with our priorities and our choices and our actions and thoughts. We say, God, you know, I, I, I realize that you have given me this life. This money, this time, these relationships, uh, this career, this weekend, whatever. But I'm going to employ it my way. I'm going to consume and I'm going to let it serve my purposes. My agenda. My will. And then this urgency comes in with the stone that he mentions. Uh, Look down at the text again in verse 17. He's quoting back. From Psalm 118, which we heard read earlier in our order of service. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, it's in view here. There is a fulfillment of that prophetic vision in Psalm 118 that is coming to fruition. But it's one thing. There's these two stones, right? 
that, that, that are in view. One of them, if preferably one that would make you trip up, would be you know, more desirable than the other one that comes crashing down the cornerstone. God, he's saying, listen, the design was that we would build our life here on the stone, the rock, the cornerstone who is to come, who is the God man, Jesus, that our lives would be God centered, not self-centered. But we have this innate gravity, this this propensity, this this proclivity, this it's almost it, it's, it's like this this directional pull in our own unbelief. And we, we head towards building our lives on ourselves, our own desires, our own agenda, our own time. And all of that was given to us to know and to serve God, to worship him. And we said, no, that's OK. And then Jesus says, yeah, but here's the deal. He makes, it, he makes it very clear in another uh, parable that many are probably familiar with. When Jesus says, hey, listen, there's a guy, there's a person, a, a, a wise person, we say. Jesus says, a wise person, and it's, it's recorded for us in Matthew 7. When Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the, the edge of an embankment on the outer part of Hull. No, no, there's places in America that won't even be insured anymore because it is a foundation of sand. I know we have a couple of people from Hull here, no offense, but we need to build our lives on a foundation and a rock. And that's when Jesus contrasts, he says, but wise is the person who builds his house, who, who listens to these words of mine. And he builds his house there because when the storms come, not if, but when, when the storms come and the wind and the rain, it rages against it, then that house will not fall. That life will be preserved. How does this come to bear? Well, I think one application is that we would hear the invitation, not just the warning. This is not a story just about the wrath of God or how God feels when he's rejected by the tenants. It's really to demonstrate the graciousness of inviting us to return, to come back, to, to bear the fruit, to come and say, this, this is yours, Lord, my life is yours. What could possibly compel us to, to do that, to surrender? Well, part of it is the fear of, of punishment. But another part of it is the joy. The joy of knowing that in taking refuge with the cornerstone, with Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That life, that record, it's given to us, building on the rock. So that's part of the enmity that's exposed. Now, Jesus then silences, if you look uh, at verse 20, because remember, they, they don't know what to, to say or do. But in verse 20, we see where he pivots and he silences these spies. Now, Jesus is in the city. He's been in the temple. The religious establishment, they know very well. They want to interrogate Jesus in front of others. And they've already asked him the question earlier in this chapter, in verse 3. Hey, listen, by what authority do you do this? And then he goes into the parable that we just read about the landowner. And that just sends them over the edge. They, they connect the dots. There are times when people don't get the, the parable at all. And that's part of the purpose. But there's other times that it starts to sink in at least to the, at least to the level of conviction uh, not conversion, but they're convicted and they don't like it that he's implying that this is them. Then they decide we must catch him. And so they will do it in a way that is entirely altogether devious and underhanded. They don't care. They're going to send spies that come in uh, like we just read here in this scenario where they're, they're filled with flattery. We know you're wise. You point us the way to the wisdom of God. 
And then they, they pose to him this question concerning, uh, well, two questions. Uh, one of them is a, a political one and another is a theological one. So first they send in, uh, they want to trap him, like I said, in his words in verse 22. Should we pay? This is the political question, obviously, uh, discussing taxes. Not that that's relevant to anyone's life this week uh, or this month. But here we are. Verse 22. Should we pay to, uh, to Caesar taxes? That's the, that's the political. Then there's this theological question that the Sadducees bring in. And that is, what about the resurrection and this, 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 this series of seven husbands? And then Jesus, in response to these questions, woven in throughout, he masterfully uh, responds and silences them. How do we know that? Well, we, we already know that verse 19 in our text says that they feared the people. They, they were slow to act because they knew that this was uh, you know, th- this was problematic. Jesus' popularity. So they don't go right after him. They want to trap him. But can they? Well, verse 26 says, then when he answered it, verse 26 says, they marveled at his answer and they became silent. That could mean that they were offended. It could mean that they're just strategic. It means maybe they're speechless. I think the latter group, the Sadducees, verse 40, they too were silenced. Verse 40 says, they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Who's lost? They're lost. They won't ask any more questions. He's a, he's, he's, he has his agenda. Jesus is in control. The political charge question is a simple yes or no answer. Do we pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? Yes, yes, we do. But he doesn't give them yes, he says, because he knows if he answers one of those two ways in extreme, yes or no, then he knows that there is that, that trap set. And he would say, yes, you should give to Caesar and pay the Roman authorities. Then there would be a large group of people that were probably enraged. I mean, you think people are upset about taxes uh, in the United States. It was far worse then. And with the, oppre- with the oppressive Romans, uh, you know, occupying their foreign land, it was we're, we're going back to the Boston Tea Party. All right. This is this is this is they're really upset about this. And so uh, he knows if they say, yes, you should give to them, then they're going to be upset. But and they know that, too. And if he says, oh, but no, we should not give to Caesar. Uh, we should not pay taxes. Then then the Roman authorities are going to say, see, you are a rebel. Then you are challenging our authority and you are in trouble. And we don't like this. So what does Jesus do? They're crafty, but Jesus is craftier. I don't know if that's a word. But verse 24, he says, reach in your pocket and show me a denarius. Now, why is that crucial and important? Because if if they were to pay taxes and they were required to pay taxes, as we talked about with Zacchaeus, really well loved tall guy that he was, um, they... To pay that tax would have to offer up a denarius. That was the means by which they, would to, they were, they were to, to, to pay. But it's also the means by which they had to carry on their life. So the right answer, if they were to trap Jesus, was when, they, when he asked them, here's your response. I'm not giving you a yes or no answer. Reach into your pocket. If they said, well, we don't carry one of those answer our question, yes or no, then he would have been trapped. But he knew that they had it in their pocket. He knew that they were already living in that system, enjoying that system, relying upon that very system. And so he says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
One scholar commentator wrote, by accepting imperial money, they have profited by the financial and the economic and the legal order of the empire. Hence, we, quote, owe Caesar for this. So then pay back to Caesar the things that are are Caesar's. End of debate. But was it the end of the debate? No, Jesus has got something else. It's not quite the end. There's actually more of a punchline. He could have ended there, and Luke could have recorded it that way, but it's not what happened. Jesus says, and give to God, verse 25, the things that are God's. That's that's tough. Um, I think we're back to the landowner, right? It's everything is his. We think, we read that and we say, in verse 25, we say, wow, that's really cool. You know, Jesus is really smooth. I mean, Jesus is like a, Jesus is like a little verbal ninja. That's impressive. And then other people say, oh, this is, this is interesting. Let's, let's spawn a whole discussion about, you know, the libertarians and the socialists are over in the corner discussing what Jesus meant about taxes. And we actually miss part of the point. Jesus is, is, is targeting our hearts and lives, just like the landowner. All of it's mine. So, so they're silenced, and frankly, we should be silenced. And hopefully not to the point of frustration, but to the point of humble surrender. Then there's this, so that's the political question. Then there's, this, there's this, this other theological question that the Sadducees bring. What do we know about the Sadducees? Well, for, for now, Luke tells us what we need to know. They don't believe in uh, you know, a, a resurrection and, and afterlife that way. They set up this puzzle. I think it's actually a bit of a joke in verse 29 because, and it was true uh, under law that, you know, that there was a, a kinsman who'd have to come and, and bear children if, you know, your, your brother's wife is, you know, a widow. But then they start adding on uh, a second wife, third wife, uh, seven wives. What are, are all the names entering? You know, I mean, some of you got that older generation. I appreciate that. Uh, no, this is absurd. This is a joke. She had, she had seven wives. She would have given up a long time ago. Uh, I, I, I venture to guess she died with no children. I mean, the, the scenario is Jesus like, fine, I'll, 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 I'll roll with your puzzle. I'll, I'll play this game uh, briefly. You're attempting to present the idea of the resurrection as if it were a joke. But it is not. Jesus tells them you're operating out of a, a, a false set of assumptions. You assume that the things that are in this age will be mirrored in the age to come. If it's a Friday in that age, it's just like a Friday in this age. And Jesus is saying, actually, no, that is not the way or the case. Just because, because think about this. That's why he's saying they're neither married nor given in marriage. Jesus is saying there was an institution established for the sake, okay, this, this, this is something countercultural. Okay, are you ready? Buckle up. Uh, this is something countercultural. Jesus is saying there's an institution that I've established called marriage. I designed it, not you, for your own purposes or your own terms or your own rules or your own likes. Here's what it is. And it is for a variety of things, but part of it indeed is procreation. And the preservation of the race. So in the resurrection, Jesus is saying, essentially, listen, there will no longer be death. God is the God of the living age. There won't be any death. So there is no need for us to continue with that institution for us to have, uh, you know, children and the preservation because there won't be sin in that age and there won't be death. 
The real problem the Sadducees have is the resurrection of the, is the rejection of that resurrection because they believe that a relationship with God is temporary. Think about that for a moment. The relationship between God and man is only something of this age, and they don't understand how it happens in the age of the resurrection. They just deny it. One scholar, David Gooding, put it well. God being eternal, the relationships that he forms are eternal. That's why here in the passage, as Luke records, Jesus is saying this whole scenario that involves the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, back to Gooding's quote, he says, the relationships that God forms are eternal. Centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, God announced himself to Moses. So Christ pointed out, as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the eternal cannot be characterized by something that no longer exists. Resurrection, then, is not a fancy, dreamed-up, wishful thinking of less than rigorous theologians. No, resurrection is a necessary outcome of the character and the nature of God. Think about this for a moment. It, 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 has anyone said this? Yes, people have said all kinds of ridiculous and crazy things down through the years. But has anyone ever said this and made good on it? Jesus says in Luke 11... I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Anyone? No, this, no, no one has said that and made good on that. Minus one. Jesus. I don't want us to miss this, that having had all of those messengers, right? Let's go back to the tenant and the landowner. Having all of these opportunities, all of these reminders, all of these messengers, all of this familiarity, the temple mount, the, the, the ceremonial, the, the, all, of the, all of the reminders of the covenant people of God. These were the religious people. And they missed it. They missed it. So let me state the obvious. They need some more balls to go into some baskets. That sounds very, that sounds very condescending or something. I, I, I don't mean it that way. I'm trying to tell you right now, you can miss the kingdom of God by one inch. And then you miss it. And that's it. How do you travel? Uh, uh, well, many of us, you know, who have family far away, we travel by, by plane sometimes. And if you get to the airport back in the day, man, you, you, you were like, do you have your ticket? My mom would say, do you have your ticket? Do you have your ticket? You asked me 15 times because if you didn't have a ticket, yeah, you're done, you know, and that's bad. Now you have the phone or you can look it up or here's that QR code or whatever. It wasn't as big of a deal. But you can have your luggage packed. You can have it marked on your calendar. You can communicate with your boss. You can communicate with the people who are going to pick you up at the airport when you get there. You can have all of, the, all of, you can have all of your paperwork together. Everything's all fine. You could, go past, you could go past where they check your ID and go past this and then you get to the plane and, uh, and you don't get on that plane 
They close the door and it's done. But if you take just that one step of faith, then your whole destiny is different. But it takes doing that step. So who is Jesus? Because to conclude that with any real thoughtful, humble, sincere way to say, remember, we go back to, you know, crown me or kill me, Jesus would say. But but for God's sake, and he means it that way, don't just tolerate me. Because to take that step of faith and say, I'm going to make you king. I'm going to make you Lord. I'm going to I'm going to. I'm going to relate to you like the landowner and the master and the giver of life and the resurrection that you are. I can do no other. But to do that in big and small ways is just to take that step and say, I don't even know where this is going. But you're the king. And we cross that threshold and they close it up. And you say, well, that's kind of a that's kind of a weird, you know, you know, aviation analogy or something. Listen, it's not. Back when they had no planes, they had an ark and it had a door. And I'm telling you, Jesus and the church is the door and the ship. And he's saying, come, here's the warning. Here's the opportunity. Here's the life. Here's who he is. Trust him. Who is Jesus? Well, we're going, to be, we're going to be asking that question. They were going to be, they're going to continue to ask that question in the weeks ahead. Let's ask for God's help right now. Father, we ask that you bring this into focus for us. Wherever that might be in response to taking just small steps of faith with our emotions, with our priorities, with our family, with our future, with our hope. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we thought having a new job or a new relationship or more money would make us happy and satisfied and that we would be content. Lord, forgive us for all the things that we've known and and the promises that we've heard. And and yet we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we need more. We do. We need more surrender. We pray that you would bring that about as we yield to you. Lord, I pray you'd make us a people who are a people of the book. I pray that you would make us as as a a, a people of honesty on our taxes. That we would be a people of humility when we meet opposition. That we'd be a people of compassion when we see people in need and struggling. That we would be a people who want to know God, know you in a personal and intimate way. There are many things in the way. and In some instances, you've ordained our trials, our, our, our suffering even. And some of those folks need your compassion and mercy and your presence to guide them through that. For those who've got ailments and Grief, doctor's visits, even this week planned. Appointments that are looming heavy that start tomorrow. Lord, help us to trust you, to cling to you, to abide in Christ, that we might bear much fruit this week. For your praise, your honor, your glory, your fame. Jesus, our hope and our resurrection, we pray in your name. And as you taught your disciples, saying together, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.